pinch the pigeon, you wicked Vincents. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. We've had a week of particularly violent and erratic weather here in Limerick. Hot sun followed by tropical storms. Like something out of Miami. That's a direct quote. I was I was walking out of my office by the taxi rank and it was really, really hot and warm and all the taxi drivers were resting against their cars in the heat because that's what the taxi drivers do when, it, when it's hot outside. They all pull up in the rank in the daytime and then they kind of lean against their bonnets, get a bit of sun and they talk to each other. And then I went into the shop and when I came back out, it just suddenly burst into a tropical storm, like out of nowhere, these big fat raindrops. And it came down so quickly that there were these two taxi drivers, men in their 50s, and they were both wearing white shirts. And the rain came down and drenched them so that they were basically nude. The water had penetrated the whiteness of their shirts so that you could see their entire torsos. That They were pink men. These, were men, these weren't men were bright pink because they're, they're white t-shirts. It was a wet t-shirt competition with middle-aged taxi drivers. And I came out and this is the first thing I saw. Big dinner plate nipples on these taxi drivers. And they're soaking wet, thunder and lightning above. And they're clambering desperately to try and get into their cars. And the both of them are just screaming at each other. It's like Miami. It's like something over in Miami. And then the rain went away. Because it was like a flash, a flash thunderstorm. That went away. And then the sun came back out again and came back out so quickly that the streets were steaming. And then I went walking down this this other street, Bedford Row in Limerick, down towards the Terry Wogan statue. And this street is having an issue at the moment in that there's just too many birds in the trees. And the birds do shits, like unbelievable amounts of shits on the pavement of Bedford Row but they do so much shit that the entire street smells like bird shit and the thing is you should you shouldn't really know what bird shit smells like it's something you see but bird shit is so small that it's olfactory footprint is something that's usually outside of our awareness not like cow shit or dog shit which has a more cavalier waft like the only time i've ever been acquainted with the smell of bird shit is if I accidentally stick my finger into it or once in my life where a bird shat into my hand and I said fuck it I have to smell it it's on my hand and you go and it's like that's strange I don't know what to make of that smell is it piss is it shit I don't know it's just the smell of bird shit it's not pleasant but it's not gonna ruin my week like if I got dog shit on my hand but Bedford Row and Limerick at the moment just smells like bird shit because there's hundreds of thousands of birds gathering around the trees and just shitting on the ground on the same street there's a bronze statue of Hollywood actor Richard Harris and I was thinking as a as a solution they should dress Richard Harris up as a hawk for the summer months to frighten the birds away so the whole street smells like bird shit but the storms have washed that away. So come and visit Limerick. <laughs> if you want to see. <laughs> Wet t-shirt competition. Between taxi drivers in their 50s. And if you want to smell a street. A street that smells like barred shit. 
on your way to the Terry Wogan statue. Come to Limerick City if you're interested in that. So I've got a a very entertaining podcast for you this week with a guest who was doing fascinating, strange, groundbreaking research in an area that intersects folklore history, mythology and strength training. But before I speak with this guest, I want to read ye a short story by one of my favourite short story writers, a fella by the name of Liam O'Flaherty. Liam O'Flaherty was born in 1896. He was from the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland. He was in the IRA in the 1920s. He was a founding member of the Irish Communist Party. A fascinating individual but an incredible writer. He wrote novels. He wrote some non-fiction. But in my opinion his best work was his short stories. And he's considered one of the best short story writers to ever come out of Ireland. And his work exemplifies the Irish short story tradition. I only started getting into Liam O'Flaherty in the past two years. And I read one of his short stories called The Sniper and it broke my fucking heart. It made me very upset because I remembered it from school. And as you know, I didn't have a very good experience in school. I wasn't very engaged with my school work. And I was just so disappointed that I was learning Liam O'Flaherty in school and having the opportunity to study his short stories when I was 14 and I wasn't present in class. So it was just, it was sickening to, to read something and be like, wow, this is incredible. I can't believe this is what we were learning in school and I was acting the bollocks instead. But I want to read you one of Liam O'Flaherty's short stories this week because this story is incredibly relevant to the guest who I'm going to have on. Unfortunately, Liam O'Flaherty is now out of print, which is baffling. I mean, he is considered one of Ireland's greatest writers and you can't really buy his short stories. If you go online, you can get one of his short story collections as a free PDF And there's another one on the website archive.org. But if you go and try and buy Liam O'Flaherty books, they're all out of print, older editions, and they're very, very expensive. I managed to find one collection, and it was like, I think it was 50 euro, which isn't too bad. Some of them were 300-400 euro. This one was 50 euro, really tattered. It's from the 1970s. So I got myself a copy of that, which is a, a collection of his short stories. I've been reading a lot of Liam O'Flaherty over the past two years. His stories have been massively helpful to me in my latest collection that I'm writing, Topographia Hibernica, that's coming out this November. The way that Liam O'Flaherty writes about animals and nature in particular, he's able to write in third person as the chaotic, uncaring voice of nature. And sometimes the tone is so sterile that... It can force the reader to just project meaning into the text because we can't handle the anxiety of the chaos that he presents in his universe. So I'm going to read this story now. This is by Liam O'Flaherty. It was written in 1937 and this story is called The Stone. On a summer afternoon, an old man was walking along the narrow stony road that led from his village to the sea. 
One hand supported his hip. In the other he gripped a stick upon which he leaned heavily. His laboured breath made a singing sound. At every third or fourth step he halted, straightened himself slowly, grasped his stick with both hands and looked around him. With the brooding melancholy expression of an aged man on his withered face, his body had shrunk, his clothes hung loose upon him, they were covered with patches, he wore only garments that had been discarded as useless by the young men of the house, for he had become useless and a burden. Although it was hot, he wore numbers of garments, yet he did not perspire and he was buttoned tightly. There was no heat in his blood, his face was yellow, his eyes were colourless, they were bloody around the rims, they had no lashes, his toothless mouth had sunk into his face, his cheekbones stuck out beneath the taut skin like the hip bones of an old horse. On his twisted hands, the skin was transparent, showing a web of sickly veins beneath. A thin white beard grew on his neck beneath the chin. Although it was dead calm, his tattered black hat was secured with a cord tied around his neck, after the manner of a fisherman at sea. When he walked, his furled stick made a queer plaintive sound on the polished limestone flags of the road and on the loose stones that lay there. His feet fell heavily, unsteadily, slipping and crunching like the hooves of a heavily laden horse stumbling at night through a rocky mountain pass. There was no sound anywhere, everything was still. The sea was so calm that its murmur did not reach him even though it lay but 500 yards away, glassy and white in the sunlight. On either side of the path there were little green gardens of oats and potatoes. He often leaned over their stone fences and blessed the growing crops and looked for labourers and was glad when he saw none, for it was unlucky for a fisherman to meet people on his way to the sea. The old man was doting. He had the mirage of returned youth in his brain. He thought he was going out to sea as of yore. He reached the end of the patch and crawled through a stile that led into a wide craggy stretch of wasteland above the shore. Now he could smell the odour of the brine and a faint thrill of joy passed through his body. He stood erect, shielded his eyes and looked ahead. He saw the vast expanse of level, glittering water stretching to the confines of the sky before him. He saw the long mound of boulders on the shore. He saw the upturned coracles on the flags among the boulders of the shore, their tarred bottoms gleaming in the sunlight. He saw the cliffs rising on either side of the rocky cove and the silent sea swelling up and falling down around the black rocks. He saw the cocks of dried seaweed and patches of sea moss being bleached white, spread out, gathered that morning by the village women. And all the joyous memories of boyhood came to him in a wild shower that sent his remaining blood coursing passionately through his veins. He went forward, moving his lips, trembling, now almost moving quickly and vigorously, for the mirage had become so vivid that he thought himself waking from a long sleep and entering the land of youth, and he was going forth to fish. As he came near the mound of boulders, he heard the ponderous lapping of the waves, tumbling slowly without foam 
about the rocks and the smell of the sea became so strong that it was like food entering his lungs. He took his hand from his hip and swung it unsteadily by his side. His stick struck the path fiercely. His eyes gleamed. Overcome by this joy, he rested on a stone bench by the side of the path. This stone bench had been built there ages ago by the fishermen for resting their baskets of fish on their way from the shore to the village. Resting there also brought wonderful memories to his mind. And he thought of his first great catch of fish as a young man. When there was soft down on his unshaven face, he remembered resting his full basket there and looking at the soft dead fish with their slime hardened into jelly. How wonderful that was. And then suddenly he remembered the stone. And as he remembered it, he stopped breathing and slowly turned about and leaned his chest against the bench and examined the rocky ground looking for it. He saw it and started eagerly. Like a hunting dog catching sight of its prey, it was a round block of granite. It sparkled as the sunshine shone on the particles of mica in its surface. It lay on the ground on a clear space between the rocks. All round it, there were bruised stones, bruised to a powder, and where it lay, there was a little hollow. The stone had lain in that place, as long as the oldest traditions in the village could remember. And from time immemorial, it had been the custom of the young men of the village to test their strength by lifting it. It was a great day in each young man's life when he raised the stone from the ground and gave it wind, as they said. And if he raised it to his knees, he was a champion, the equal of the best. And if he raised it to his chest, he was a hero, a phenomenon of strength and men talked of him. Whereas he who failed to lift it from the ground became the butt of everyone's scorn. It had always been so from the time of the most remote ancestors of the people. The old man, looking at it, became very fierce. As he remembered the first time he had lifted it, he was barely 17 and he had came secretly after nightfall and tussled with it until every muscle in his body ached but he had lifted it just an inch no more and little by little he had raised it higher until he began to be spoken of with respect by the young men and old who came there on Sundays during the trials of strength. Then he recalled the great triumph of his life and his bleary eyes filled with tears so that he could not see the stone at which he peered but he saw it in his mind vividly in the grey dawn, slippery with dew. There had been a wedding in the village. The youths of the district were gathered, numbering among them many men who were famous for their strength and beauty. All night they made merry, and then when daylight was streaming through the open door of the crowded house, somebody challenged them in a loud voice to put their boasting to the test and to go over to the shore and see who would lift the granite stone highest on his body. Shouting and laughing they set forth, followed by many women. And there they stripped themselves and rubbed their muscles and seized upon the stone. But he alone, of all those strong men, raised it to his throat and kissed it with his lips three times before he dropped it between his widespread legs on its bed of powdered stones. And the shout that was raised that day 
before sunrise by the people of his village now rang as loudly in his ears as if it still floated in the air. Mumbling, he left the beach and throwing away his stick, he went stooping to the stone. He staggered heavily without his stick, but he was unaware of what he was doing. His eyes were fixed and they gleamed with the light of madness. He reached the stone, steadied himself and stood erect, looking down upon it. Then he raised his hands to his mouth, spat into his palms and rubbed them together. He blew out a great breath and shook himself. Then he began to scratch the ground with his feet, getting a foothold. He set his legs wide apart, slightly bending forward at the knees. His body was trembling violently, but he did not notice it. Then he stooped over the stone. First he placed his hands upon it and then paused, breathing slowly. His breath whistled with asthma and it came out irregularly in gulps. Then he began to move his palms over the stone, slowly, seeking a grip. Its surface was so round that it was impossible to get a grip anywhere except by encircling its bulk with the arms. So he bent lower and reached down with his hands. But his body had become so shrunken with old age that his arms could not cover sufficient of its bulk to enable him to get a grip. And he twisted about, growling and pawing at it, enraged at the impotence of his arms. His knees bent more and more. He began to groan. Then he knelt before it and stooped until he was touching it with his chest. He spread out his arms all over it. His hands touched the ground. Then he could at last grip the stone. He pressed and became still. The effort had exhausted his lungs. His tongue was sticking out. He panted for breath. His eyes became covered with a glaze. Then he began to feel the stone against his body. It had become hot under the blazing sun. It had an exciting, maddening effect on him. A big red blotch came before his eyes. His body stiffened and a lump, like a knot, came into his throat. His blood rushed to his head. The veins on his forehead became big. He sucked in his lips, groaned, drew in a great breath with a rattling sound and heaved at the stone. It remained absolutely motionless. He fell over it loosely with his arms thrown out limply. His chin struck the stone. His back shivered. Then he stiffened, shook violently from head to foot and rolled off the stone, falling on his left side. His legs shot out. He tried to raise his head but it dropped back over his left shoulder and remained that way. His face staring at the sky. His lower jaw dropped. A little yellow wisp of moisture oozed out of his lip. For a few moments his body shuddered and then he became terribly still, with his eyes wide open and his lower jaw hanging. Flies began to buzz about him. Presently, one settled on the yellow stream that was oozing from his mouth. Another came and the two flies quarrelled about his mouth, buzzing violently. He lay thus for a long time, motionless. There was dead silence except for the buzzing of the flies. Then human voices broke the stillness. People appeared, coming from the village, calling and shielding their eyes as they looked about, searching. They entered the craggy field where he lay and came on without seeing him until they were within ten yards of his body. Then they shouted and came running to him. When they stooped over him, the 
two men took off their caps and crossed themselves, and the women uttered a loud wail. The old man was dead. A middle-aged man with grey hair, who was kneeling beside the corpse, said in a loud voice, We couldn't keep him indoors this last week. He kept stealing out, see? Trying to lift that stone he was. It broke his heart. He was the dead man's son. The other man, a neighbour, said reverently, There was a day then when he could lift it high, praise be God. There's nothing in all creation that isn't more lasting than man. They raised the corpse and carried it away on their clasped hands. A woman spat upon the stone and crossed herself. It's the devil of pride, she said, that brought sin first into the world. Then they went away, talking loudly and lamenting. Later, when evening came, people came to look at the stone out of curiosity, to see where the old man had died. And they talked of his youth and of his strength and of the wedding night when he kissed the stone three times, holding it level with his throat. And then, youths who were there challenged one another to a test of strength. They stripped themselves and began to tussle with the stone. So that story is, that's The Stone by Liam O'Flaherty, written in 1937. And when I first read that, I was just fucking bowled away at the beauty of it because it, it's... That's the minimalism of O'Flaherty's writing. It's just about a story. It's just a man and a large stone on a beach. And it's an elderly man who's Alzheimer's or whatever. And he's looking at this stone that he used to be able to lift up when he was a young fella. And the story contains everything. Life and death. And the uncaring chaos of nature. And it's one of my favourite short stories. The thing is, when I initially read that story, I, I just assumed it was a mad idea that Liam O'Flaherty had. That there would just happen to be this old man on this one beach and this one stone. And this is a thing that people did in that community. Or maybe it never happened and O'Flaherty made it up just to make a good story. That's how I felt about it. And only very recently did I find out that lifting heavy stones as a trial of strength is actually an Irish tradition that goes back possibly thousands of years. And it's a tradition that's completely lost on this island. It's not practiced anymore at all. Stone lifting is practiced in Iceland, parts of Scotland, but in Ireland, it's it's dead and gone. So the guest who I'm going to speak to today is a fella called David Keown, who, he's an Ireland kettlebell champion, so he used to lift kettlebells. And over the pandemic, he became interested in this ancient Irish tradition of lifting stones. And what David Keown is doing is that he's using old folklore stories, mainly from that website, Ducas.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S.ie. He's going into the Irish National Archive of Folklore for evidence of Irish lifting stones in communities that are completely forgotten about. And then he's going and finding them and lifting them. And this guest literally found the actual stone that is in that story I just read out. Liam O'Flaherty wrote that story not just about a practice that would happen in in the Aran Islands or the west coast of Ireland. 
he wrote about an actual literal stone and my guest found it this year. He's an incredibly fascinating and passionate person and I'm going to interview him now after the ocarina pause because I don't want to interrupt it because we had such a cracking chat. So let's have the ocarina pause now before I get into the interview with David Keown about lifting stones. I've got my Puerto Rican guayro. I'm going to play this. Sometimes people are wondering, why, why do I have an ocarina or an, an instrument every time an advert comes on? Because sometimes the adverts are at a very different volume to my podcast and I don't have control over that. So I don't want ye to be ni- nice and relaxed there listening to me reading a short story. And then all of a sudden there's a loud advert for tires. So I'm going to play an instrument, in this case a Puerto Rican guayro, so that ye have a pre-warning. If a big loud advert comes on and someone with a Dublin 4 voice. Here we go. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Beautiful instrument. Thank you to that person in the Bronx who sent me that Puerto Rican guero. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If this podcast brings you entertainment, distraction, joy, solace, whatever, whatever reason it is that you listen to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing because this podcast is my full time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I rent out my office. It's how I feed myself. It's how I pay my bills. I adore this work, but it is only possible because the podcast is is listener funded. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen to the podcast for free because someone else is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful arrangement based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. I have a new book of short stories coming out in November. If you'd like to pre-order that book anywhere around the world, 
go to my Instagram, Blind by Ball Club on Instagram, and I have my pinned stories at the top of my profile. Contains links where you can pre-order my brand new book, Topographia Hibernica, which I'm very proud of and can't wait to show you. Right, let's plug some gigs. Let's plug some gigs. On August the 26th, I'm in the Cork Opera House for the Cork Podcast Festival. That's going to be unbelievable, crack. Check out the Cork Podcast Festival in general, not just my gig. CorkPodcastFestival.ie You've loads of acts doing live podcasts all over Cork. You've myself, uh, fucking the two Norries, I'm Grand Mam, the Creep Dive, Critter Shed, Kali Ennis with his Critter Shed. There's loads. Go to Cork Cork Podcast Cork Podcast Festival.ie That's hard to pronounce. Then on the 28th, I'm up in Vicker Street in Dublin. It's going to be unbelievable crack. That's a Monday. Monday night gigs in Vicker Street, lads. I'm telling ye. I'm telling ye. You're thinking, going to a gig on a Monday night? I don't want to do that. Yes, you do when it's my podcast. Because... It's going to be a nice, relaxing, engaging enema. <laughs> enema? The fuck did I say that for? I meant to say, it's like going to the cinema. <laughs> but I just said it's like an enema. <laughs> Come up to Dublin, we'll all have an enema on a Monday night. The point I'm trying to make is... Come to my gig in Vicar Street, the live podcast on... The 28th of August, which is a Monday night, because it's a relaxing evening. It's like going to the cinema or going to the theatre. You can come to my gig, right? You won't be having any fucking pints because it's a Monday night. You'll have an engaging evening. Then you're off to fucking bed and up in time the next morning for work. No hassle. There's no fear of getting rat arsed, is what I'm trying to say. Usually with a Monday night gig, you're like, ah, fuck. I wouldn't mind having a few pints, but I can't do that on a Monday. I don't want you to have pints at my gig. I don't want... Because you'll ruin it. We've, we've heard what's happened. Do you remember that gig over in Canada there with the fella singing horse outside? I don't want that at my gigs. Right, what else have we got? <laughs> Don Leary on the 9th of September in the Pavilion. Alright, that's going to be great crack. Good old Don Leary. Good old Dun- Don Leary. And then... I'm doing the Patrick Kavanagh Festival, am I? Am I doing that? Where's that? Monaghan. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I have a good fucking guest for that. I have a cracker. I don't know what I tell you yet. I have a beautiful guest. For So I'm at the Patrick Kavanagh weekend in Monaghan on the 30th of September. And I'm. it's a Saturday. That's going to be great. And I have a cracking guest. And then Belfast on the... Oh, I can't read numbers, lads. I'm so sorry. 18, 11, 23, which means it's the... It's the 11th is the... The the 18th of November, 23, I'm in Belfast at the waterfront. That'll be good crack too. I can't read numbers, so I need to ask my, my fucking agent to just go... When I'm doing a gig, just write it down in letters. I don't need to be reading dates because I can't fucking do that. So just write it down in letters. November the 18th, you're gigging in Belfast. Just write it down for me. Don't be asking me to fucking... It says 18, 11, 23. So I have to, I have to work that out like it's maths. 
Alright, look, I have a cracker of a guess for you. Um, his name is David Keown. And the work that he's doing is... He's the only person doing it. So he's the only person doing this work. He's been doing it for the past year. And he's unearthing traditions and history on this island that could be thousands of years old that have disappeared. And I'm talking about the tradition of lifting stones. Big, heavy, monolithic stones that exist in in villages up and down Ireland where the people used to lift them as a test of their strength. And this was a big deal. And my guest is, is finding these fucking stones and lifting them himself. And he's using folklore resources like the Ducas.ie, the National Archive of Folklore. He's using these archives to, to find the stones and then speaking to local people. In particularly quite elderly people who have information that's going to die with them. So he can find these fucking stones. He's not funded. He's not a professional. He's someone who's doing this purely driven by passion. I was trying to get him to set up a Patreon for himself. But I would like you to follow him on Instagram. On Instagram, he is Indiana Stones. And I'm going to link his po- or his page on my Instagram when I post this episode. So here's the, the wonderful, enjoyable chat that I had with the incredibly fa- fascinating and passionate David Keown about lifting stones. All right, so David Keown, thank you so much for coming on to the Blind Boy podcast. Um, so my listeners... My listeners, first of all, are from all around the world, and yes, they won't have a. Cl- what I've done before, I'm chatting to you here, is I, I read Liam O'Flaherty's story, The Stone. Oh, what a story! Which is incredible, and I read that to people, and they're going to hear that before they listen to your interview. But I mean, if I can synopsize what you're doing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're somebody who had an interest in fitness and then you started finding out about this Irish tradition of lifting heavy stones, which is something I hadn't a fucking clue about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, and now you're actually trying to find these stones. Like when I read that Liam O'Flaherty story and I only read it this year, right? I just thought, wow, this sounds like it's on Mars. (laughs) <laughs> I this, I just thought this is an isolated story about some mad old man who has Already a relationship with a stone. That's what I believed. Yes. And then someone pointed me in the direction of your work. And then I went, oh, my God, this is not an isolated story. This is a tradition of stone lifting in Ireland. And then I find out it's happening in Iceland. It's happening in Scotland. They have yeah. it in Japan, parts of Europe. And we've forgotten our history of lifting heavy stones. That's exactly what happened. So how do you, you (laughs) tell me what you do. Okay. So um, I've been researching through like the Dukas archives and I was. At Dukas, that's our our folklore collection. Exactly. So, so what you, so you go to Dukas, you go to the National Folklore Collection and try and search for evidence of a stone. That's exactly it. Well, I was kind of, um, my inspiration came from, from Scotland, you know, um, there was Rogue Fitness made this documentary about, about maybe eight years ago now. Oh, it was fantastic. Oh, I saw I mean, that, yeah. Called Stoneland. And it was all about, uh, traditional lifting stones in Scotland. And it just blew me away like, that there was, these stones were not just like lifting stones, they had cultural value. You know what I mean? 
they had cultural value. They were like a rite of passage from like a boyhood to manhood or to become a warrior. You had to be strong enough to lift this stone. So it was the history of these stones that just grabbed me. Like. So what we're talking about is, is a village or a townland in, in parts of Scotland or in parts of Iceland. Yes. There tends to be a very large stone that has been there for a long time. Hundreds of years. Yeah. And the local people, usually men, I'm assuming, but I don't know. It's seen as a rite of passage for someone to be able to lift this stone. That's exactly and it. A, a, as Liam O'Flaherty says in his story, which is a beautiful description, is if a man could lift it to his shins, fair play to you. Yeah. If he could lift it to his chest, amazing. But if he could hold it up high above his head, he was a legend. A legend for all time and to be spoken about with honour for his life and for lifetimes afterwards, you know. So it was just this whole, you got this whole massive social status. You know, you gained a lot of social clout by being able to lift this testing stone of the village, you know, where the, the ones in Scotland tend to be like, they tend to be like, um, like I said, the rites of passage. So they are a little bit lighter, you know, they're like, say, around the, between 100 to like 120 to 130 kilos for these rites of passage stones. Then they have like big, large feats of strength stones on the islands that were used. Now, that's pretty fucking heavy. It's still heavy. I mean, there's some fucking difference in lifting a, a stone of 110 kilos. And lifting a barbell of 110 kilos. Like a barbell is made to be lifted. That's, it's got knurling. Yeah. It's meant to be lifted. Like a stone is quite happy where it is. You know, it doesn't want to be lifted and it has its own center of gravity. It's awkward. The grip becomes a thing. You're usually lifting it on, on sand or on grass or in mud, you know. So wow. it's it's a real feat of strength. You know, everybody in the world knows a stone is heavy. It's hard to pick it up, like, you know. So you, you as well, you, you're into kettlebells, aren't you? That's right. I was for, for many years. I got to represent my country, which was just an absolute Fuck off. Honest to Christ, yeah. So you were serious, serious kettlebells. Yeah, um, like kettlebell sport, which is like this mad Russian endurance weightlifting sport that I somehow fell into back in 2012. How do you win a kettlebell competition? What? So what you're doing is you're, you're cleaning and jerking um, two kettlebells, like one in each arm, to rack position, which is like two, two, your, your waist, and then you're bumping them up overhead. And you're doing that as many times as you possibly can in 10 minutes without putting them down. So it's a real strength endurance sport. It's, it's a real great sport, you know. So just a quick question about kettlebells, because like I've used them, but just I've seen them at the gym and picked them up, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And when I use kettlebells, like I'm picking up, we'll say 30 kg. Yeah. But I also, I know how to pick up a 30 kg dumbbell. Yes. But when I pick up the kettlebell, I'm like, be careful here, you don't knock yourself out. <laughs> because with a dumbbell, I have control and there's a predictability. But with a kettlebell, if my wrist and my hands aren't strong enough, mm -hmm. this thing starts swinging in all directions and it can get dangerous or it could even throw me onto the ground. The question is, do you find a similarity between kettlebell negotiation and lifting these stones? That's that's a really good question. I'd never thought of that before. But yeah, um, I really do find a similarity between both because, like you said, you have to negotiate with a kettlebell. Yeah, it, it has its own path it wants to travel in. You have to move around that, almost like a balletic dance around the bell. And the stone has its own center of gravity that it, is, it wants to be lifted in. And you have to negotiate that as well. So I suppose it's more of a thinking person's lift than just like, you know, just grab something heavy and pick it up. There's a lot of forethought goes into it, a lot of feeling out what to do, and especially with the stone lifting. And what I find fascinating about that as well, David, is my, so my experience of stones is mainly through art. Right. You know, I like, I go to the gym and I enjoy the gym, but I'm not really that serious about it, but I love art. Yes, same as. And I've always studied, take someone like, um, your man, Michelangelo. Yes. He, he was, uh, 
he was a sculptor and he worked with stone and he worked with marble and always the best sculptures with stone. What, what made stone very different to painting, we'll say, is the stone decides how it's going to be made. The artist has to work yes. with the grain of that stone. And if the artist doesn't work with that particular stone, they can't make the piece of art to the point that some artists felt that the sculpture was already there in the stone. The artist's job was just to find it. To see it and to, to bring it out. Whereas with a canvas, you do what you like. And I find it so fascinating there that stone is like, no, this is going to have to be on my terms, buddy. Exactly. It has to be. It has its own way. It wants to be lifted. And like, there's no other way. There's only one way to do it. So like I said, there's a lot of feeling out and moving the stone around and finding different planes of, of movement and centers of gravity, you know. And uh, then just getting the grip on it. But yeah, it's it's such a, a, a fantastic feat of strength and it just looks so cool as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. It looks great. I mean, it's 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 such a, a fun way to train. And I mean, when you're doing it, you're pretty much getting a deadlift, a row and a front squat in one when you're lifting those things up to your chest, you know, so it's a pretty much a good full body worker as well, you know. What I found mad when I was doing my research is like the stones in Iceland and in Scotland, so, some of these stones have their own Wikipedia pages. That's right. They're very famous. Especially very, those, very, famous. very famous, those ones in Iceland. I mean, like the Husafell stone is using like the world's strongest man, you know. And you mentioned there about, so what makes a stone legendary isn't necessarily just how heavy it is. It can be the shape of it. Yes. But also. The story. The, the, but, but, but what about like, you, you said that even the ground under the stone. So you could have one stone, I'm guessing, that's on a beach. Yeah. And because it's a beach, it might be easier. But if this stone is down in the middle of a muddy bog, you could be fucked. Exactly. And it mightn't even be that heavy. Exactly. Yeah, your, 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 um, your surroundings dictate the lift always. Like there's one I found over on the island of Inish Turk, which I never even knew about up to six months ago. An island, it's like a tiny island, but only like 52 people living on it, like off the coast of, of uh, Galway or Mayo. I can't remember which one it's off now. But uh, there was a stone up at the, the men used to lift it at the local place, the, the drinking water lock on, on mm -hmm. the island. And like, it was in, like you said, it was in a fucking muddy bog. Like it was in a bog, yeah. you know, there was a, a, a large stone underneath this stone to stop you from kind of sinking into the bog as, bog as you were lifting it. And the valid lift was just to break the ground with it. And the stone weighs oh. like 207 kilos, which is absolutely in, insane weight. You know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely amazing. I mean, when you put it into context, like the Husafell stone is 187 and they use it in the world's strongest man competitions, you know, and this stone is 20 fucking kilos heavier. And these mad lads on, on Inish Turk are, are picking this thing up off the ground, you know, just to show you how strong those people were back in the day. And they gave me the names of the men who, and I met the, the son of the man who lifted it and stuff. So the people had this as local knowledge. The people in Inish Turk had local knowledge. They're all local knowledge. That's what I find fascinating. Everybody, when you get to the place, there's always somebody who knows about it. You know, it's this oral history that we've always had. And it was passed down word of mouth, you know, and whether I got in Dukas mm. or whether I'm meeting people like local folklorists or archaeologists or historians, there's always somebody who knows about it, you know, but it's just literally that local area know about it. And that's it. So what I've been doing is going to these places and just saying that these, these stories are absolutely incredible. The stones are beautiful. Let's let's celebrate them. Let's celebrate this, this kind of lost part of our strength culture that was it was gone. It was in about two, two generations from being lost altogether because, you know, these people are getting older, they're passing away. And like, we need to protect this kind of stuff because it's, it's just fascinating, you know? Here's a question. So he, this is just my theory. Now, this is, I know fuck all. It's just a little, I have an interest in history. 
like, okay, they managed to hang on to it in Scotland, they managed to hang on to it in Iceland, and then in Ireland, it's like, this is actually gone, lads, yeah. and you are someone who's trying to find this old tradition. I'm assuming, like, if we go back 400 years, 300 years, however long these stones have been lifted, if you have a community who are going to lift a stone, that sounds to me like a community who are happy and well-fed. Yes. Happy and well-fed. Otherwise, a stone isn't very high up on the agenda. Exactly. Lifting a stone is something you do when your other needs are met. And I can't help but wonder, did the fucking famine fuck all this up? I think you're 100% right, because I've been talking to all these local people, and it seems to be that 1840 to 1850 was the cutoff point. Everything yeah. stopped after that, you know? I'm not lifting anything if I haven't eaten a week. I, exactly. You can barely lift up and lift yourself up off the ground, not to mention pick something yeah. up heavy. So like that whole culture died off between emigration and whatever. I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that one, definitely. I think that's the reason it stopped, you know? And then because of the emigration and because of, you know, the civil war and like, you know, fight for independence and all that, this, this all just got lost and people who knew about it maybe emigrated or moved to the cities and forgot about it, you know? So it, it was lost through probably no fault of our own, really. And it's just wonderful to be part of the renewal and the resurgence and like the, the reimagining of this, you know, it's just incredible. And that the story that I'm speaking about as well, the Liam O'Flaherty story, you found that <laughs> fucking stone. It's fucking bananas. I mean, I, you found the stone. I found the stone of the story, the stone, you know. Tell us about the stone. Tell us about oh Liam O'Flaherty's actual stone. I can't believe the cunt wrote about a real stone. I, I can't believe it either because it was the very first one I was trying to find. How did that happen? Did you? How did you come across Liam O'Flaherty's story yeah. and then decide I'm finding that? So, look, like I said, I watched all his documentaries in Scotland. Then I went to Scotland and lifted about 16 stones over there. There was one of the stones called the Fina stone. So, like, the Fina warriors, part of their test to become a Fina warrior was to lift this fucking stone in Glen Lyon in Scotland. Do you mean Fina like the Fina, like Fionn, Fionn McCool's? I mean, like, Fionn McCool and the Fina. Wow. Fionn McCool, the Scottish version. So, like, the Fina stone is still there. You can go to that field in Glen Lyon and pick up that stone and see you as strong as a Fina warrior. That could be thousands of years of lifting. It is thousands of years of lifting. Oh my fucking God, are you serious? I fucking am. I mean, that's that's what started my journey. Oh, that is unbelievable. There's a fucking stone that Fionn McCool might have lifted up. Exactly. I mean, it's like, oh it's like saying God. to fucking to a lad in Norway, like Tars Hammer sitting out in the field in Trondheim, go fucking oh, give it a go. Oh, like, amazing. It's amazing. So, I mean, when I saw that and I picked that stone up and it was probably one of the most amazing things things I've ever kind of had done you know it was just it was incredible and a friend of mine is long he's an artist he's a sculptor and he made me a sculpture of it he said that was just one really cool cultural moment you know so then I was like right there's stones in Scotland there's stones in Iceland we're in the middle and the island is bare there's no stones or heritage of stone lifting here that's written anyway so I'm going to start looking so what you do so you, did you get a suspicion oh I got it I got it I was like no there has to be it'd be actually more unusual if there wasn't stone lifting here because like, wow. we're in that area so I looked up, mm -hmm. what do you do? You go onto Google. I typed in lifting stones in Ireland and I got Dr. Connor Heffernan, who's been, uh, who's a, a professor up in Ulster University. And he's a huge history for Irish stone lifting and strength culture. So mm -hmm. he was saying that there's, um, there's a story by Limo Flaherty called The Stone, which I'd, I'd never heard of it, mm -hmm. but he'd all these, these, these snippets of it on um, a piece he wrote online. Mm -hmm. So I read like, doing a piece, it was, it, was, it was a round block of granite and it sparkled as the sunshine shone upon a particle of mica in its surface. The sparkling and the mica. What, yeah, what that, a line. I, I read that what and I'm like, line. what type of stone is this? Exactly. So it's like mica. I was thinking, I was thinking, okay, that's probably granite, you know? So it was like, it's a granite stone. So you're thinking about geology now as well. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking if the, if this stone is sparkling, that's probably granite. And then you're thinking, where is the granite? 
it's probably then a glacial erratic because where's the granite? Do I have to go? So it's like, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see, can I go over to, to Inishmore to find this? But before that, I was looking through, there's a guy called Peter Martin who was like brought back the resurgence of Scottish stone lifting pretty much single-handedly um, about 12 years ago. He went on a journey of his own and refound the whole, pretty much the whole culture in Scotland himself. Mm-hmm. He found 30 stones and he wrote, and his 13th chapter in his book, which is available to read online, he said there's a stone called the Inishmore stone. And, and for people who don't know, Inishmore, th- these are the Aran Islands. So these are islands that are off the coast of Galway on the west coast of Ireland. There's a woman living on the island called Fiona, God bless her, whoever she is. And Fiona said, hi, there's a boulder on a rough pathway down towards Port Vale and Dune in Curtin Coppel. The locals used to lift it. And it's the boulder Limo Flaherty wrote about, and I'm pretty sure it's still there. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's the feeling you get when you, like, because you're very passionate about what you do. And, and what's the, I mean, you're doing something very important there. You're really finding something that's been forgotten about and lost, except for these few people left on, on Inishmore. Exactly. I mean, like, my, my mind was blown. I mean, because like, the story is, is incredible, you know, and mm-hmm. I was like, I can't believe that this thing could be a reality. So like, I, I'll go over mm-hmm. and have a look, you know. So myself and my two mates went over in a camper van, parked up, got onto the ferry on probably the worst day in Irish fucking history, going over to the Iron Islands, lashing rain, waves. We cycled in the 25 minutes to this place um, called Port Vale on Dune, which is a village kind of just on the east side of the island. And we get to this rough boulder stream pathway, right? Now, mm-hmm. anyone who hasn't been to the Iron Islands, Iron Islands is just stone. It's just rock. The ground is scraped clean. It's glacial karst landscape. It's fucking just, it's just rocks. There's boulders everywhere. So you're looking for a rock in a, in, a, in an island full of rocks. <laughs> exactly. I'm looking for a needle in a needle stack. But I had this little piece with me and I said, you know, about the Mika. I was thinking that's probably granite. So I'm walking down where she said it might be down this, this, and I have the video. I can actually still fucking see it in my head doing it. I was walking down and in a little patch of grass, which are at a premium on the Iron Islands because it's fuck all grass. In this little patch of grass with blue stones all around it was this large rose pink granite boulder. All the other rocks are grey. It's pink. It's pink. It's fucking rose pink. It's a glacial erratic. And it's it's sitting there, the one rose pink stone in a field of grey. Why is it the only pink stone? Did, did humans put it there or is that just a fluke it's, of nature? It could be just a fluke. Because I mean, I mean, on other parts of the island we were passing, you see like oh, pink granite boulders as well, okay. you know. But in this particular place, this was the only one. So it's like... I was saying to myself, that has to be it. You know, I didn't know then that was it, but it was like, do you know, we can almost feel the fucking energy off of something. I was like, yeah, this is it. There's no two fucking ways about it. So I tried a couple of lifts on it and it's massive. I kind of broke the ground with a barely like an envelope's width the first time. And I came back about a month later with a friend of mine from from Scotland called Jamie Gorian, who's lifted all the Scottish lifting stones. and He'd been all over the mm-hmm. world. He was like, I can't believe that story's true. He said, I'm coming over to lift that stone. So we go back. Of course. We go lift the stone. He gets an incredible lift up to his chest, which was probably the first time that's done in maybe 150 years, you know, which is incredible to see it. I got a better lift on it this time. And there was a man giving a walk into her, an old man giving a walk into her with a couple of yanks. And he was like, I went over and said, excuse me. He said, look, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you know what about that lifting stone down there? Oh, Shah, he said, yeah, the Moulin Portfolio on Dune, he said. I said, what? He said, yeah, oh, yeah. The, you had a name. The name. The name is called the Moulin. So it's the Moulin Portfolio on Dune. What does that mean? I don't know. Port Vale is the actual area. So that means mm-hmm. the mouth of the fort and the fort is doing Angus. You know? And what's Moline? And I don't know what Moline means. I don't know what that means yet. I'm sure someone will, will tell I'm me. I'm going to ask Mankon, Maggie. Do, do. It's M-O-U-I-L-I-F-A-N. Moline. So it's the Moline Port Vale and And he said, yeah, that's the lifting stone down there in the patch of grass, he said. So then I got the verification from an islander. And that was their very first lifting stone in Ireland found. And that's the Limo Flaherty stone. 
and it was just such an amazing that's find. That's fucking astounding. It was. It's. it's I. It's so beautiful that that's the first stone that you because that's the. Like. That's so beautiful to find Liam O'Flaherty's stone. And for that for to be the first one that you find, because it's it that's the stone that was written. And with. that was the first one. Exactly. That was the last one. That was the last time probably a lifting stone was written about, maybe back in the 1920s, you know? And one thing I, I can't help but notice as you speak about the stones, you also have a a knowledge of geology. You're 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 going into the science of geology. How important is understanding geology to the work that you're doing? I suppose it's 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 pretty important. It is, you know. I mean, I wouldn't have any background in geology. I just like I don't have pretty much a background in anything like this, you know, folklore or anything like that. But it's just a passion project. You know what I mean? It's just something I like yeah. because I started doing it, because I started getting into it. I started looking up the geology of the areas, what stones are prevalent in that area, and why is that stone there, and why was that stone lifted. So it is important, you know. I mean, obviously the men lifted that stone because it stood out. You know, it stood out. That's the reason yeah. they lifted it. You know. I mean, that's immediately what I think is like. When I'm thinking about this culture too, I'm also thinking about a culture of boredom. Yeah. Like, they didn't have iPhones. You didn't have anything. They had fuck all. Do you remember when you were a kid? Do you remember being a kid and one of your friends finds a used condom or a dead rat? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Do you know the way your entire friends group is like, I heard there's a, there's a condom in that car park and everyone has to go everyone down and poke it. That's a kick on it, yeah. Or a dead rat, and everyone revisits it each day to see how it's decomposing. That's easy. Like that was that was being a child. But back then, when you didn't have TV, radio, nothing, and you're on an island, if there's a fucking pink stone, you're, you're, everyone wants to find out about this pink stone. And then someone says, "I bet you can't lift it." That's I say. I mean, I tell you, that's exactly it. And like what I came across with all this as well, there was on the Sundays there was something called the Trials of Strength, which again is something that's been lost, but. Before or after mass on Sundays, and this is cropping up at all of these stones. And I'm after finding 24 now in Ireland, which is just absolutely unbelievable in 12 wow. months. But um, what I'm finding is that it was the trials of strength happen on the Sundays. So, like, like that's it. You get, get leisure time because during the week you're probably working off fucking week, and on yeah. the Sunday then you'd go down and the lads would have a few bits. You know, they'd maybe they'd come in off the corks. The one, the Limo Flarty one, is down by like um, it's down by an old kind of wharf. You know, so they'd probably come in. From the Corrux, and they'd have a bit of banter, and they say, "Look, who can lift that?" And probably the bits. They might have a fine feed on a Sunday too. They might be it. well fed on a Sunday. That's another good point. Exactly, I hadn't thought of that. You know, so they're probably feeling a bit fitter, and they're they're a bit more relaxed, and said so they go down and they try their arm at this, like you know. But and it said in the story, like it, from time immemorial, you know, I mean, time yeah. immemorial is just, and when you go into the Iron Islands, you really feel what time immemorial means, you know. Yes. I mean, I'm looking up at that fucking fort. The Dune Angus is, is right above this stone. You know, it's like. Could it be connected to that? And like, and that thing is like, what, four or five thousand years old? And you just oh don't my know. God that, almighty. You know? So it's like, you just don't know how far back it goes. It could go back thousands and thousands of years, you know? And here's another question I have, and it, it, this is another thing that, that I'm very curious about with these stones. Like, we have forts in this country that are, like, let's just take Newgrange. Yes. Newgrange is older than the pyramids. Yeah. Someone had years. to lift those fucking stones. The reason it's still here is because it's made out of stones and stones don't disappear. So somebody had exactly. to lift those stones to put it together. And I'd love to know, is the, like, I found, I, I was doing a bit of reading and in Iceland, yes, the stones had a purpose. If, if you could lift this stone, you were strong enough to be a fisherman. Exactly. They, they, they and had you were allowed on a boat and yeah. you could then collect big loads of fish. Exactly. Is there... Some connection, do you think, with our stone walls, our stone forts, 
Oh, 100%. Like, I can't wait to tell you this one. There's a stone on Inish Man on. called uh, the Cluck, what's it? Tashton Le Seer Clihe, which means the stonemason's test. And wow. to become a stonemason on Inish Man, you have to be able to lift this stone up onto a wall. And if you're strong enough to lift this massive, again, granite boulder, the exact same color, the exact same shape as the one on Inish Moor, pink granite boulder. If you could lift that pink granite boulder up onto a wall, you were strong enough to become a stonemason and then you could go start your, your trade. But that was the, the job interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's astounding. And, and what I find interesting about that too, like, so we, gyms are very popular right now, like real popular. Very. And a lot of people go to gyms and I adore going to gyms. And I'm always very clear with people. I go to the gym and lift things, not because I want to look a certain way, but because it genuinely helps my mental health and gives me a, a sense of purpose and meaning. Exactly. And sometimes I feel you kind of have to explain to people that when you lift heavy things, it's not just to look a certain way for other people. There's something, it's not just about vanity. It's not just about identity. And with these stones, I have to, there's a, there's a narcissistic 21st century part of myself that projects a sense that all these lads were going around the Iron Islands 300 years ago, pure buff, <laughs> and they're lifting these stones to look nice. And I have to go, no, maybe it was something more than that. Maybe it had to do with a profession, with a job. Maybe there was a reason for this beyond that fella has great shoulders. Yeah, exactly. You know, so like, like that one, like specifically on Inish Man, like being the, the testing stone, you know, that was very, very important. And I remember I met an old man, I was lifting the stone and it was like something from a hundred years ago. You know, there's, as I was lifting the stone, there's men walking over the fields because the world had gone out that I was doing it. And they're watching. And they're coming over and they're leaning over the wall and they're having a chat to you. And then they're telling you the stories about their granddad lifted the stone. And my, my, my great granduncle lifted that stone back in the 1920s. What does that do to you? What does that, when you get a bunch of men gathering around going, I, I heard of someone who lifted this in 1890 and you're in the middle of trying to lift the fucking thing. <laughs> but it puts a bit of pressure on, you know. What What's the deal there? Like, well, I mean, because I'm assuming as well, you, you from the sounds of things, you, sometimes you go to a stone, you can't lift it and then you go, I'm fucking lifting that yeah, someday. Sometimes I go and I can't lift it. You know, but I'm training to go back and like I'm specifically training now to go back to the Aran Islands to lift that stone. And honestly, I'm, I'm going back this Thursday. I've been training for six. What's your goal? Do you want to lift it above your head like no, in the Liam of Flaherty story? If I can get that up to my lap and if I can maybe stand up with it, I'd be delighted because it's a hundred. So how far did you get with the Liam of Flaherty stone? The first lift, um, I got it, like I said, I barely brought the ground. I brought the ground with it, which is a valid lift. They call it getting the wind under it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a valid lift. So that's, the, that's stage one. Stage two is to get it to your knees. Stage three is to, is to get it, is to stand up with it, maybe at your abdomen. And stage four is to get it to your chest, you know, and kiss it three mm -hmm. times like, like the, the man did in the story, you know. But um, I'm hoping to get it a hell of a lot better than I did the last time anyway. And I've been, like I said, specifically training for that for, for 14 months. So it feels like this whole um, validation thing that's going to happen here now, you know. Um, and I'm, Here's another question that I have for you, right? Yeah. And this is, so in Irish mythology and Irish folklore, we have a tendency towards... Mm exaggeration and hyperbole. Yes. Like if you listen to how someone describes Fionn McCool or describes Coo Cullen, who are, are great heroes of mythology, they'll say something like Coo Cullen uh, had a slingshot and he could take down a full flock of swans with one throw. Yeah. And it's like, he didn't. That yeah, doesn't, exactly. that's not real. But 
do you think there's ever a stone? Like when I read that Liam O'Flaherty story and I'm like, someone can pick it up and kiss it. Part of me was wondering, could they really? Or is that just that Irish tradition of there was a man so strong he could lift this big stone over his head and it never happened? But at what point does modern science, like not only modern science, but like you represented Ireland as a kettlebell lifter. Yes. So you know the crack with how to lift things, how to do it safely. This is your profession. Do you ever look at a stone and go, that's not going above anyone's head? Um, well, it's, most of the stones in Ireland are never, never went above the head. Like the, even though the Liam O'Flaherty one, it went to his, his his neck, he said, or his chest, and he could kiss okay. it three times. Now, like my friend Jamie Garion from Scotland did exactly that last year, you know, so it's definitely doable. You know what I mean? It's definitely doable. And I feel like I do that myself. There's lads around the world now who, who they're, they're going around. Okay, so you've seen another person do it, so therefore it can be done. Exactly. You know, now look, we're Irish, you never let the truth get in the way of a good story, like. You know, that's that's who we are as a nation. Exactly. But I mean, I, I have gone to places like that, the one I found in Duke was up in, up in Clon Fad, where they said the stone weighed 42 stone weight, which I think works out at about 240 kilos. But I brought So let's with, work through the process of that, right? Yeah. Because you just mentioned there. So you go on to Dukas, which is the Irish, uh, I did a podcast on this about three weeks ago, but it's the Irish folklore collection where in the 1930s, Every school children in Ireland, every school child in Ireland, yeah, had to go to the old people in their village and say, "Tell me a story about something about this area," and it was recorded. And this is our national folklore collection. So from the start, you're just after finding a stone, as you mentioned there. How do you begin on Dukas right. to read something and go, "I'm going to find this thing"? Right. So I start or to even know if it's bloody there. So what you do is, you, if you just go into Dukas and type in "stone," you get twelve thousand and seventeen pages on Dukas. That'll just go to show you how important stones are. Wow. You know, that's 12,000 pages and there's probably eight to 10 stories on each page, you know? So mm-hmm. anything around 100,000 stories about stones. So, I mean, that could be just like a marking stone or like a milestone or a stone bridge or like a, a giant throwing stone to so many of them, you know? Um, Fiona McCool fucked this big massive stone off a mountaintop and it's a glacial erratic that's sitting in the field. Even the Rock of Cashel, like the Rock of Cashel, which is not a stone, it's fucking giant. Yes. But even I know the story about the Rock of Cashel is apparently the devil took a bite out of Munster and spat it out How and cool it landed. That? And that's the Rock of Cashel. How cool is that? Like, that's brilliant. That's yeah. fucking brilliant. So look, I went on to Dukes and I typed in stone and I, you, about every 100 stories, you might get one about a man who lifted a stone, right? So the yeah. story about this one was that in County Westmead, there's a man called Paddy Langan of Bloomfield and he was the strongest man in the area. And the story goes that he carried this stone from a neighbouring house to the graveyard. And his line was, men will count themselves good men if they can carry that stone and repeat that feat. Mm-hmm. The, the story said it weighed 42 stone weight and no one could move it since. Right? So that's that was the one in Dukas. So it was like, okay, it said it's in this general area in, in Westmead. So you go, then I go on to Westmead on the Google Maps and I type in um, old cemeteries. Sure, I mean, there could be 30 old cemeteries in, in, in Westmead, mm-hmm. you know? So I kind of say, right, what's around close to this area? So I think it was a place called, I think it was called Tyrconnell. So there was about four around Tyrconnell. So I took a guess and I was going to head up on the Saturday, right? On the Wednesday, I get mm-hmm. out of the fucking blue, I get a phone call from a guy called Warren McGeegan, who's an expatriate living in Canada, but he's back on his holidays meeting his family. He said, Dave, I see what you're doing online. I think I found the clan fadstone of, uh, of Paddy Langan. I was like, what? I found it, he said. And he sent me on a photograph and he was like, I think that's it. And I was like, how the hell did you find it? What, which, which one of these graveyards is in? I sent him on the four. And then none of them, he said, the graveyard is so old, it's not even on Google Maps. So wow. it was just a circle of trees off the side of the road. 
and uh, where like a graveyard, a, once, a graveyard stood. once stood and there's like a six wow. foot circle of wall and the graves are still in there so I, like, I, I head up to this place first thing on Saturday morning I mean I'm getting up at four or five in the morning I can't sleep the night before I'm so fucking excited mm-hmm. right I get up to this place and you go through there's like this gap in the hedge and then it's like a secret gate and then you go through the field and you're looking at this ring of trees that's not even mapped it's so fucking old and you hop over a four stone style and then you get into the place and it's like stepping back like 300 years like the graves are there they're from the 1600s 1700s you know the church is so ruined there's only like mm-hmm. half a half a stone wall left and it was a beautiful sunny day and there was these there's sh- not even a church there. there's not even a church there now it's just it's just everything's just ruins you know but mm-hmm. I, I turned left and it, it was like something from i don't know from a film like there was shafts of light coming down through the trees it was early morning and this big beam of light had caught this and the story said that it was an egg-shaped stone and the beam of light was just on this fucking egg-shaped stone sitting in front of a grave and i was like fucking hell that's the stone. That's it, like, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like something, the fucking start of Indiana Jones or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I walk over to this thing and it's absolutely massive. Now, they said it was 42 stone weight. And there we go back again with like a little bit of exaggeration. Like, that, mm-hmm. I said, that's about 230 kilos. But I brought Wayne gear and myself for Warren weighted and he met me there and it was like 190 kilos, which is still absolutely fucking huge. How would you weigh the stone? It's interesting. You, you have a little uh, kind of a hanging crane scale, you know? So you wrap the stone in, 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 in say, rope. You hang it off the little, small little crane scale, small little kind of a hanging scale, put a bar through it and kind of deadlift to pick it up between the two of you. So you get a hanging weight of it, a proper weight of it. So we made it three or four times and it weighed exactly 190 kilos, you know? So this man, mm-hmm. this fucking dude, Paddy Langan, picked this stone up and took it for a stroll, you know, about 50 yards from the nearest house. Because I was looking at, like, that's probably the house over there. And I was like, that's just incredible, you know? That's that mm-hmm. story and that's that stone now found. And it's like, it's they, because they gave a description of the stone, it was egg-shaped. That was the only stone, the whole place, massive stone, egg-shaped. I said, that's it, you know? So it's really, it's just been looking up Ducas, finding out the nearest place. Because I mean, sometimes it's in a cemetery, sometimes it's at a crossroads, and then driving to the place. And sometimes you get lucky and you find it straight away. Or sometimes like the one I found up in, um, one called the Flag of Den, which is just absolutely fucking incredible, up in County Cavan. I had to hack through the, uh, an old eight-foot fucking weeds cemetery for two and a half hours mm-hmm. to find the thing, you know? But uh, it's it's some adventure. It's an absolute fucking adventure story, so it's been the last 12 months, you know? What? Um, so the you're doing this for the laugh. You're doing this because yeah, you love it, right? Exactly. But also what you're doing is very important because... Y- like we were colonized and part of being colonized is you lose your culture, you lose your language, you lose your traditions. And what you're doing is finding stuff that was taken, yes. taken from us for whatever reason, the famine, whatever. And are you getting support in any way? Um, are, are universities getting involved and going, well, David Keown's after finding a stone up here now. What next? Do, do we write about this? Do we confirm it? Are you getting support in any way? Not particularly. No, look, I'm getting a lot of help from, from Connor Heffner up in Ulster University purely because he loves strength history and he loves stone lifting, you know, and he's mm-hmm. just, he's just been incredible over the past, the past six months, especially, you know, he's like, um, I mean, like, in fact, I'm talking to you, you know, this is just, it's amazing for me. Like I work in a shop in Waterford, like, you know, and I'm like, suddenly GQ magazine got onto me there mm-hmm. last month and they, they put me into the American GQ. Now that's it, the next month's issue with that. Like, am I, like, am I have to step into an alternate mm-hmm. reality or something? I just hope academics are sitting back and going, this is important and this person is doing very important field work. I think some people, like being on the likes of this podcast, and again, I can't thank you enough for having me on, 
um, will help. I mean, it's, it, it'll get the word out there, you know, and please God, like I said, we will get people like that involved in it. Now, I will say Connor is very well respected. He's very well thought of. And I want to let you know, like there's the O'Flaherty Festival on Inish Moore invited myself and Connor yeah. over this uh, August, the end of August, the 26th and the 27th, um, to do a, a reading of the story of the stone down by the stone itself and to get a couple of lifts on it. Brilliant. And um, Nationwide are coming over doing a piece on it. Um, I've, I've um, Dr. Paul Rouse, who be Ireland's kind of eminent strength historian, he got wind of it and he's like, um, can I come over and say, of course you fucking can, that's fantastic. Connor will do um, a reading over there, you know, or a bit of talk about it. And that's going to push it on a bit as well, you know. And like I said, this is something that it is important. And like, it started off just as an innocent journey, you know, but along the way, it's 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 collected this whole kind of culture and meaning and value. And to me as well, it's kind of connected me more to the land and to who I am as an Irish person over the past yeah. 12 months, more than anything ever else has done in my life, you know, because the meeting of the people, the hearing the stories, you're you're reaching back into the past and you're, you're grabbing onto these people that were, you know, repressed and, it's it's just it's been a, 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 an adventure and an absolutely incredible and an honour to do it. This is what I love about Irish mythology, and this is why I'm so interested in mythology and folklore. Is that it's not about some type of nationalistic idea of what Irishness is. It's stories about the land that we call Ireland, and especially a lot of these come from an oral culture. And what I adore about our oral storytelling is. When you don't have, when you don't, when you can't write, when you don't have a piece of paper or you might not have written language, uh, we told stories about the landscape in such detail that you'd never forget them. Exactly. You know, so you couldn't just have a river or a pond. The pond had to have a magical fish that could talk. Yeah. You know what I mean? That had all the knowledge of the world. Or you couldn't just have a mountain. A mountain had to be the breasts of a god. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it stood out and it stood out in your mind. You never forget it because of those reasons. Exactly. Um, the other thing is, is so we, we like stones are important in Irish mythology in general, not just as lifting stones. Like, do you ever come across, like I know there's a type of stone called a ballon stone, <laughs> which is a, a, yep. a stone that has a little depression in it. Exactly. And people didn't lift them, that they, but they believed that these stones might have been magical in some way. Do you ever come across other stones? I came across a ballon stone that was also a lifting stone. Um, and what 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 is what what do you know about ballon stones? Um, well, like, there's there's kind of a general kind of a no one really knows what they are. You know, I like to believe that that they're all pagan or druidic offering bowls. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, they look quite altery. They do. They look. They have that natural depression in the middle where rain tends to collect in a pool. Exactly, and again, those 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 waters then had healing properties. You know, mm-hmm. um, but. I'd like to think that oh, they so were. you'd find them near a holy well. You might find them near a spring or a well. Yeah, exactly. And like okay. this one that I found, it was over on the island of um, Inishbofin, which I mean, mm-hmm. the, the island of Inishbofin is just a magical place. Anyway, it actually was a magical enchanted island um, mm-hmm. until like two two sailors came on and lit a fire on it, but mm-hmm. um, which disenchanted it. But I heard there was a, sto- a stone called a uh, Clucknoretig, which is called the Ram Stone. And mm-hmm. Johnny Dillon from the National Folklore Collection, who I'd done a podcast with him as well, and that was fantastic because he's so knowledgeable. He's an archivist up in the National mm-hmm. Folklore Collection. And he sent me on a story about the, the ram stone in Inchboffin. And it was written in Irish, but he translated for me to, to English. And it was about that these men went, went fishing off of Connemara and they got becalmed and they went on to Inchboffin. They heard there was a lifting stone. So they went over and one of the men lifted the stone. And they went to all these houses then kind of, you know, saying, oh, great, <laughs> you know, what a fantastic feat it was. And there was an old woman there and 
she was like so they went and told everybody afterwards they went and told people afterwards it was more kind of boastful because they were I suppose they were I they weren't you. from the island you know they're saying yeah. you know we're, we're, we're strong men and we've done that but um, there's all the old woman there was she was like wizened with old age and she was blind and she said let the man put his hand forward that that lifted that stone so all the men went over and she said no it wasn't you it wasn't you and she knew by the feel of the man's hands wow. that he, she, he lifted that stone and she kissed his hand and said that's the man that lifted the stone today you know, so by the feel of his hands the and of his, the catalysis exactly, and the strength. Exactly. She could wow. feel the hands, you know. So I said, What an absolutely beautiful story. And that's also a balance. And it's a balance. So I, I got in contact with them. I friended up like Inish Boffin uh, Facebook group and I start, just started mm-hmm. asking questions. And, you know, you get nothing back. I'd ask again the next week. Till all of a sudden, a man called Tommy Burke got in contact with me. And Tommy is the last man to lift that stone on the island. Tommy being in his 60s now. So he said, Jesus said, Come up, mm-hmm. come up and I'll show you. It's an incredible stone. He said, In a beautiful place. So I go over on the ferry over to, over to Inish Boffin and there's no one on the ferry, only me. And I get off and there's Tommy Burke, a giant man, six foot four, massive big hands on him. Come down, he said, hop into the car. We go down to this place. It was an old monastery from the, 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 the eighth or ninth century. And in front of this stone altar, right? So like the lift was, you lifted this fucking balloon stone, which is a pagan druidic offering board onto the Catholic yeah. altar. And that was their, their, the valid lift of the island. Oh, that's fucking amazing. Fuck so they're me. lifting a pagan stone on a Catholic onto altar. Onto a Catholic altar and you're standing there, wow. right? And there's only one gable left in this whole, in, in of this whole church or monastery. And you're looking back through the gable at Crow Patrick. And I'm like, this is fucking unbelievable. You know what I mean? And the stone itself is huge. It's absolutely massive. It's about 180 kilos, but it's, there's a hole going the whole way through the middle. So what you do, you kind of have to grab it in the middle and kind of leverage it, kind of lean back and lift it up onto the altar. You know, so I managed to do that. And uh, then Tommy, against doctor's orders, because, you know, he, he's um, suffering a bit of an illness. He fucking went and done it again. He said, I haven't done that in 35 years. 64, yeah. And he's like, I can't believe I done it. And I thought I'd never do it again in my life. And thank you so much for coming over. And I was like, this place is just fucking wow. magic. The stone is a balloon stone, which is like a conduit to deities maybe for fucking 2,000 years or more, lifted onto a Catholic altar in a monastery, looking at fucking Crow Patrick. <laughs> well, that, that tells us so much about the age of the tradition because like what we definitely know is when Ireland became Christian, like people like St. Patrick, what, Patrick was really, really good at going to the local people and their pagan um, practices and then incorporating these yes. pagan practices into Christianity so that there was a compromise between the two yes. and the people didn't feel that their culture was being erased. So if if you can identify a pagan ballon stone being lifted onto a Catholic altar, then you can guess that this is at least 6th, 7th century. And then you go, well, how long before... 6th, 7th century, were they lifting this stone already? Exactly. And stones don't go anywhere. Like, when we think of fairy forts in Ireland, you know, you have a mound and it's like, I don't know why this mound is there. It's a mound. Like, chances are the reason the mound is there is at one point there was a wooden structure and all that's left is the earth. Yes. So wood disappears. Stones don't. That's it. That's why Newgrange is still there. That's it. And like those, how long is that sitting there? How many people have come and gone? That's what I find fascinating about this. You know, how many people have laid hands on this? How many? And no one's going to rob it. No, you'd be doing fucking well. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no one going to take it because there's still a veneration and a respect for them, especially the further west you go. And what I find fascinating as well is I haven't found a lifting stone past the middle of Ireland going east. Everything is west. 
I'm very fascinated by the westernness of all this, yeah. It's all west. It's You think it's landscape based? It could be landscape based, it could be And also as well the stone walls. I mean the first thing you notice when you go to the west of Ireland is Jesus, there's a lot of stone walls around here and you don't tend to see them in the east. Yes. That's it. Is there a relationship, do you think? Oh, there is. There is definitely. There is definitely with that. You so know. The, the, the profession of masonry and wall and wall building. It's, it's definitely a part of it, you know, and whether there's more respect for them and maybe there's more kind of Gaeltacht areas going that direction as well. And because it's an old Irish tradition, it was kept because I was talking to a man up by a called Sean O'Cushtalva up in County Galloway. And he's like a Shanachie mm-hmm. and a folklorist and a poet and mm-hmm. he's just an amazing man. And he was saying, yeah, he said, I think it's the fact that they're in these Irish areas, he was saying, you know, and there's, we still have a respect for them, you know. And I went up to lift this stone a couple of weeks ago called um, Clock Darkeen, which is the stone of the cove. And where the men mm-hmm. used to come in from collecting seaweed or fishing and used to come in and lift this stone. But even when I went up there, there's a whole load of, of weeds and kind of flowers all the way along this, this stone wall. But where that stone was, it was all chopped away and cleared. So there was still mm-hmm. a veneration. That stone was looked after. The place, they didn't let wow. the weeds grow over, you know, it's still there. Yeah. Maybe not. And I went up and I met the man, the last man who lifted it. And like he was well into his 70s, you know. And he was so happy I came up to lift this stone. He said, look, I, I keep this area clear. He said, and keep it clean because I remember lifting the stone, how good it felt and the, the respect I got back in the day. And I went up then and again, the word got out and people just started arriving from all over the place. You know, the the, the women came out, the children came out, There's the dogs came out. The There's a man here who could attempt to lift the stone. So I did. I got I got I got the wind under, which is the valid lift. And they were all delighted. They were like Mahan Far, Mahan Bukel. So you you got it, you just got it above the ground. Just got it above me. It weighs Asher. They, they, he said it weighed about 190 kilos. And I wouldn't wow. I definitely it's, it's around that. It's just to get the what's called the Gui Fu, to get the wind under it is the lift, you know. So I got that and he were, they were just so happy that I'd made the journey. Because it's a five and a half hour journey from fucking Waterford to get there. Yeah. You know, West Galway. I'm talking right out in the, the teddy bear's arm, right out in the, the coast, like mm-hmm. And they were just so happy that I was showing interest in their local traditions, you know. Do you ever come across any um, superstitions about stones, like fairy superstitions or something supernatural where people have a respect for this object, not just because human beings lift it, but a, a belief around it that it's it's magical? Definitely. And there's a stone called the, the Flag of Den. So it's a flagstone up in Den in County Cavan. What's a flagstone? So a flagstone is like a large kind of a rectangular stone, you know? Okay, like, like that like, would go on the top of a tomb. That's exactly it. And it's like, it's about yeah. maybe eight to 10 inches deep and there's a, a lovely big rectangular shape. But uh, the stories around the stone, I, I urge anybody, go on to Dukas and type in Den, D-E-N-N, the Dukas. I'm waiting to see the stories mm-hmm. you get about the stone. The stories about, um, like there was a, a ghost story, but there was... Uh, a coat was drawn by four horses without heads and he used to travel down to Den Church. There's like a giant was meant to have thrown that stone from, from Schlieve Lake, which is two miles away. Wow. There, it, used to be a, it used to be a cursing stone. Did you ever hear the cursing stones? No. So like, there's cursing stones all over Ireland as well. So a cursing stone was if you lifted a stone, a specific stone, a specific way, you turned anti-clockwise or you flipped it over and you, you, you could lay a curse against your neighbours if, you, if they'd done something bad to you. You could curse them. By lifting the stone, think like fucking voodoo for all the world, you know. So you could use this. So if you had the ability to do this, like voodoo, so you, you, if you could lift this stone in a certain way, you could bring bad luck on people. You could bring, if you wanted to, you could curse somebody. Here's a question. Here's something that I'm fascinated with about this: is often you find with uh, indigenous folklore and knowledge, when you investigate it, it tends to have real world applications. And what I'd love to know there is. 
Like human beings are human beings. Yes. And you know, if I went and tried to lift one of these stones, I, I could really damage myself. Yeah. Like Bruce Lee ended up in, in hospital for two years because he went at a barbell the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, I could really fuck myself up if I tried to lift one of these stones with zero knowledge whatsoever. Like what I'm asking is, is what did people know about that back then? That, that, I think it's a hard question to answer. You know, um, I'm not sure. Like, there's a way that you lift and you know how to lift with safety. Do you know what as well I was thinking because this has come up a couple of times with people asking me there something similar to that. And what I was thinking was these people were so fucking strong because all they did all day was work. You know, you're thinking like a stonemason, a farmer, a fisherman. There was no such thing as like machinery. Mm-hmm. You're out in the fields. You're out in the sea pulling rowboats. You're building walls. You're cutting hay. You're, you know, you're feeding animals. You're working all day. You're probably as strong as fuck. You know what I mean? You're, and it's an all-body workout It's a full-body workout all day long. So they're squatting, deadlifting, exactly. they're doing everything. They're, they're picking big stones out of fields. They know how to lift, you know. They probably, they probably know better than we know how to lift because they're doing it all day, every day. Because one of the things I, and this is an interesting thing I found out about the human body, was, like I said, I go to the gym, but I'm not very good at it. And... Over the pandemic, when the gyms closed. Yeah, how did you find that? The, yeah. Oh, for me, it was bloody awful. Yeah. But one thing happened to me was I'd go to the gym three times a week and then I'd run 10 kilometers three times a week. So I'd be exercising six times a, uh, six times a week. Yeah. When the pandemic started and I could no longer go to the gym and I went about two months without lifting anything, I did myself some serious tendon and nerve injuries from running. And when I went to my physio, the physio was like, here's what happened. You kept doing your 10K run, which you were, your heart and lungs were fit enough for. Yes. But because you were no longer going to the gym, you didn't have stabilizing muscles and then you got seriously injured. And the reason was, is when I go to the gym, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not looking after my entire body. I'm not as responsible as I should be. I'm not doing full body movements. Mm. I'm focusing on the chest and the shoulder and maybe a bit of the legs. Yeah. But I'm not doing full body conditioning that kept my body safe. Yeah. And then running fucked me up. It's amazing. And I'd imagine with, what's the word they use? Is it functional lifting? Functional strength. Functional strength. This is why I was told kettlebells are so good. They are. They're fantastic for it, you know. Kettlebells are good because the movements that you're doing replicate actual real movements as opposed to just being on a machine and working your shoulders. Yes. If I pick a kettlebell up from the ground, I'm doing a deadlift, I'm doing a squat, my shoulders are engaged, my lower back is engaged. I'm working all the bo- the muscles in my body to keep them all healthy rather than just focusing on one and neglecting others. Exactly. Compound movements, they call them. I mean, you can't beat Compound them. Compound movements, yeah. Compound movements. You can't beat it. I mean, you, you can't beat it, like I said, for full body functional strength, which is day-to-day strength. And I tell you what, I mean, the fact that I'm out there doing the kettlebells and lifting those stones, I'm training three days a week, and I don't train in the gym anymore. I train out my back garden, I train on the beach. And with kettlebells, with, with, with mainly with, with, with stones, but also with, with kettlebells. So you've moved from kettlebells. You've, so you've stones out your back garden now. Oh, stop it. Some fucking crack. Because lockdown again, like, you know, I like you, exact same thing. I went to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 10 years, lifting kettlebells. Mm-hmm. So then all that got fucking taken away. And I was like, what am I going to do now? Like, I only had a couple of, again, maybe two or three kettlebells at the back. But my wife had a lovely stone carving. Like I met my wife in our college. We both went to Crawford. Mm-hmm. And she had, she had a beautiful stone carving on a plinth out the back. Um, it's about so I weighed okay. it on the kitchen scales and it weighed 60 kilos 
So I started picking up that stone and, you know, choking it around the back garden over COVID to keep me sane. Wow. You know, so that's how, how my interest in stone lifting started. Was this because as well you saw that documentary about the, the stone That lifting. documentary came afterwards. This was just literally, I needed to pick fucking oh. something up. So you, <laughs> you as a bored human being decided the world's gone mad. There's a stone up the back. Exactly it. So That's I started amazing. lifting the stone and then I, I, friends of mine see me online putting a few posts up and they're like, I'm digging a water, I'm digging out the back garden. I found a big boulder. So there's lads rocking up in vans and fucking boulders into the back garden. So the back garden. So you naturally found this it, practice before exactly. you knew it was a tradition it just around the world. Happened. You know, it just happened that wow. it was a beautiful thing. It was a progression. And then I went from there to because I was lifting stones, I saw these stone documentaries, which I'd recommend anybody to watch. But what, what brought you to this? What curiosity then? What made you, like, I understand lockdown and everything and time on our hands. What made you go, fuck the kettlebells. There's something about that big rock. Do you know what? I mean, and I'm very, very lucky to say this. I set out a load of goals when I was doing kettlebell sport, right? I set out goals myself at the start. I wanted to win a world championship. I wanted to win a European championship. I wanted to get what they call a master of sports, which is the top rank. You can get almost like a black belt. And I wanted to set a world record. And mm-hmm. I'd done all that. And I'm very, very proud to say I'd done all that. Wow. Um, and at 2018, 2019, I was just after f- finishing everything with Kettlebell Sword. I've done it all. I've had a fantastic time. I do a bit of coaching with it now. I help people out. And then COVID struck, you know. So I was like, I just finished this huge thing. And then I kind of didn't know where to go or what to do. And mm-hmm. just through necessity of having a fucking, me, me poor wife stone carving at the back and picking that up. It led me on that journey. And now I've, all I've been doing really is stones, you know, is lifting stones, is picking them up, it's researching them. And then I got into the ones, like I said, I went to Scotland and I got into that whole history vibe of it, the FINA, and then over here finding them. And now it's just, I just made this natural progression from just like strength endurance sport where you do like 100 or 500 lifts in a session to like this just pick something up once, you know, it's been, a, it's been quite a journey. Um, from from that, you know, it's been the totally opposite of what, what I was doing for years before that. Do, do you see anything? So when I look at, uh, we'll say, Iceland, Scotland, Ireland, is there anything about the history of geology there? Like the first thing I think of yes. is is glacier, like a, a g- giant big ice glaciers. They go through the landscape and when they do this, they pick up rocks and scatter them. Is there a, tra- a history or tradition there of glaciers or something and areas where people pick up stones because there's just loads of them? Again, like I said, I, I wouldn't be the biggest, um, I have the load of knowledge on that, but I, I think you're right because like a lot of the stones in Scotland were glacial erratics as well, you know? Um, the ones in, in, in Iceland are a little bit different because I think they're more basalt. I think they're more volcanic stones. Yeah, they're more volcanic. But I think the ones around here, um, because they stood out, were were to do with maybe glaciers a couple of million years ago, you know? I'd love to have somebody tell me more about it. And, and, you know, I'd love to have someone say, look, this, yeah, that's the reason, you know, that'd be great. Like, you know, because like I said, I wouldn't be 100% up on it. And then uh, um, just a question about, and you might know the answer to this and you might not, but when we're thinking of, we'll say, the West of Ireland and the tradition of all the stone walls, the stone buildings, even I'm thinking of the likes of Skellig Mikkel and the little beehive houses up there, you know them that are made out of stone? The Cluckons or Cluckies. The Cluckons, yeah. 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 Like, I'm assuming you just had this landscape full of stones and then workers had to go out into this landscape of stones, be able to pick them up, find the best ones and put them in a pile and say, this, we're building a house out of this. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, how I think that's how it happened. I mean, it's such a desolate landscape, isn't it, when you go west? I mean, 
because I mean, like I never went really like I went to Galway City, but I'd never gone out into the, the countryside of Galway before. I'd never had any call to, you know, that's why I'm loving this. A bit. Like I'm going mm-hmm. around Mayo and Sligo and West Galway and West Clare. But you just see how rough the landscape is, you know, just like being mm-hmm. on the fucking moon. Like the boring is just incredible. And, and But then you could go past mm-hmm. Middle and it's the exact same landscape. The barren, I want to know, are there any stones in the barren? Not that I know of yet. I'd love to find one. I'd love it. Because, again, and if anybody has any information, please contact me. You know, contact me through, mm-hmm. through um, I'm down as Indiana Stones on online, on, on Instagram. I'm going to put all your socials and everything on the podcast so people yeah, will follow if, you. Yeah, you know, anybody has any information, please let me know. Because, like, 24 found in, in, in a year, like, in about 14 months has just been a revelation. You know, it's been a revelation. Are there any, any stones that are related to the... The beach, we'll say, beach stones that get battered around by the ocean or anything. Would you believe it? That's where I train. I train out in a place called Benvai Beach, which is in the UNESCO World Heritage Site of the Copper Coast, right? There's only three UNESCO... Oh, in Waterford. In Waterford. I heard something special about that, yeah. It's fucking just beautiful out there. And it's just this hidden gem that nobody knows about. Like, the Copper Coast in Waterford is incredible. And I train out in the beach out there, and I have three stones that I've named and weighed... Oh, it's just it's 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 so different to going to the gym you know you go out I'm on this little cove it's only about 100 yards long there's never anybody there it's just me and the seaboards you know and I'm picking up this stone and like I said talk mm-hmm. about feeling grounded and being part of nature and you know it's fulfilling like I'm a kind of a spiritual thing for me as well as being for my body you know so mm-hmm. like I just come back out of there and I'm a different person like if I had a bad day in work I go out there for an hour and I come back just happy out you know it's it's a beautiful place and like i said i have those stones there now and please god in 100 years time someone will say those were the david keown stones and let's go out and see can we pick up them you know mm-hmm. so there is like i said limo flaherty's one is down as well down by a wharf there's one called clock na arkeen up in karna and there's one called uh clock kaliganishka which is them um, kaliganishka is like a, again it's like an old wharf that uh, where the men used to collect seaweed it's in a place called corner own which is called bend of the seals out in um yeah out in corner own in county galway and there's, there's three stones then at, at uh, wharf sites or beach sites in, in Ireland, you know. But most of them are found in graveyards, which is which I found another mad thing about it because they're all at these at the funeral games, which I never even heard about before until I started doing this. Like the funeral games were at the funerals, like back before again in the eight, before the 1850s, there were like three or four day events, and they used to the men at the games. There was these stones in the in the cemetery where they were burying the body, and like to pass the time or to just. The younger men would go over and see, could they lift this stone? This was the lifting stone of the funeral games. And I say about 75% of the stones I found are in, in, in cemeteries, you know? So um, I mean, that was fascinating. Even when you mentioned there, like it's clear that a part of this for you, it, there's a spiritual need, there's a, an, it, it's your mental health, it gives you a sense 100%. of meaning. What you said there, it'd be nice to think in the future that someone's going to say that there was the stone that David Keown lifted. And something that I'm getting from all of this is like we as humans, we're always trying to search for immortality, whether we know it or not. Even when you, someone who creates art, we all, can I have something? I know that my body is going to die. Can I create something that exists even after I die? And I'm fascinated that, Funerals are associated with this because if if you're like you're going finding a stone in the middle of the west of Ireland and some old lad tells you, oh, I can give you the name of a person in 1820 mm. who lifted that stone. So that person has won their little piece of immortality exactly. there. You know, you're reaching back to the past and you're you're almost you're grabbing their hand through the stone, you know. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. 
you know, they're, they're not dead. They're, they're putting your fucking hand where their hand that's was. That's it. You're, you're, you're reaching back to them, you know, back through the midst of time, back through all the oppression and the, the famine and everything that went with it. You're going past through all that and you're reaching back to these to these people who lifted the stone. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's it's like it's part ritual. You know, for me, it's part ritual and it's part strength. You know, it's and it's, it's fully immersed and- in Irish culture. When you go at a stone and you see it and, you know, the first part is is your mind is trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. It, with these stones, is, is there only really one way to lift a certain sometimes stone? Sometimes there is only one way. Yeah, sometimes only, because the way the stones are shaped and they're all different shapes, you know, they're all these beautiful different shapes. So sometimes you have to stand the stone up on end. They say it was a long stone. There's a stone down in Faha Graveyard in County Clare um, called Cluck Nafar. And there's also a woman's lifting stone, which is the first found in the whole world. I so think. women are part um, of this tradition too? Women are part of the tradition, massively so. There's there's a man's lifting stone. Okay, let's talk about that because everything I was, like people call these manhood stones. Yes. And I wasn't seeing a lot of uh, women being involved in this tradition. Oh God, I mean, again, Kinta Dukas, look it up. Um, women's lifting stones are, are, are uh, strong women. You know, they were very, very prevalent and earned and got a massive amount of respect. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's fantastic because it kind of takes away that whole patriarchal view of, of, sto- of stone just being a, a lifting, yes. just being a, a man's foray. You know, the, women were involved in this as well. Like there was a woman's lifting stone in Clare, in Faha in County Clare. So myself and Connor Heffernan and Aisha Ola, who'd be Ireland's strongest woman five times over, went down with a podcast crew there about, about three months ago down to Faha. Mm-hmm. And she got like the first documented lift of this woman's lifting stone, you know, in modern times, which was just fucking brilliant. brilliant. You know, it was just brilliant to see it. And there's another girl there called Kayla Mann. Kayla done the same thing. And that was fantastic. I picked up the man's lifting stone. But again, going back to how it's lifted, the man's lifting stone is so wide, you can't kind of put your legs around it to pick it up. It's so long. So you have to have to stand it up like a, like a loaf of bread on its end and just fucking bear hug it and, and, and pick it up, you know? So, but the man's lifting stone was 162 kilos and the woman's lifting stone was 112. But Why do they sometimes call all of these stones manhood stones? Because I'll be honest, I wasn't mad about that bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think they call them manhood stones here. I think they were called manhood stones. Okay. More so in Scotland. Well, that's coming from, again from okay. my limited knowledge of it. But I, I don't think they were ever called manhood lifting stones here. They were just stones of strength. So g- gender isn't as uh, heavily connected with it here in Ireland in our tradition. Definitely not. I mean, I found another stone up in um, uh, Clonall, up in again in Westmeath, where there was a woman called Mrs. Kildee who um, the men were out lifting the stone up in Clonall Church. And Mrs. Kildee was leaning over the wall looking at him and kind of jeering him because they couldn't pick it up well. And they said, look, if you're so strong, why don't you come over and try it? And she went over, she bet them all for height, you know? So, and like, that story is, is in Dukas now, you know, it's, Fair it's there. Fair fucking play to her, brilliant. Fair fucking play to her. What a, what a great thing to do, like. And I went up and I found that stone um, up in, up in Clan Ole. And it's like, I put that on the map and like, strong women are going to come out and hopefully try and do a little event around it. And it's just great. It's great. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's there, for, it's for everybody. You know what I mean? And j- just a question too, actually, because I didn't ask this and it's an obvious question. Are there still communities in Ireland lifting stones? I don't think so, to be honest. Wow, it's gone. Fuck. I mean, because th- all the men I'm meeting who know the stories, they're all old men. And I mean, even when I was over in Inishmore and I met that man who was doing the uh, the walking tour, he's like, ah, oh, it's a shame. He said, there's a man living in that house over there, he said, a couple of hundred yards away. And he knew fucking everything about that stone. He said he died in his 90s. He only died there a couple of months ago. He could have told you everything uh-huh. about it. But you're, you're, getting, you're only about a generation away from this being gone altogether. So the fact that I'm going around and I'm kind of bringing, like, you know, metaphorically and fucking physically unearthing these things and, and bringing them back, mm-hmm. it's just, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, it's a part of our history that's, you know, it's important. It's a piece of our culture that was lost, you know, through, like I said, no fault of our own. And it's just great to be doing it like 
And do you ever go to an area and you're like, I reckon this stone is under the ground? Um, the one in Dane was some crack because I got up to this graveyard and I was like, I got to this graveyard, this old graveyard, and I met this old man and I said, look, do you know where the, where the old graveyard of Dane is? He said, yeah, he said, it's down the road there. He said, about a mile down the road. But you'll do well to find that in there. I said, why is that? He said, it's wicked overgrown. There's no one cut that graveyard in 20 years. So I went mm-hmm. up and I'm, I'm not joking you. The weeds were fucking tight to the ceiling. They were eight feet tall. Like, So I have a bill hook in the back of the car. So I just took out the bill hook and just hacked me way through the fucking graveyard for two and a half hours looking mm-hmm. for this flagstone. And, you know, sweating and blood and fucking mud and thorns and overgrowth. And then eventually, after two and a half hours, I just get to the left-hand side of the graveyard. I get this clang noise, pull it back. And they say that the then flagstone had a carved cross in the top of it because it was also used as an mm-hmm. altar stone. So I pull back the fucking ivy and there's this, this carved cross on the bottom of the stone and rip back all the ivy. And there it is. But that thing was absolutely buried. It was never going to be found again, you know? So that was buried. So under, it was buried in buried, the ground. Buried, totally fucking buried. Because I'm assuming too... If you have a real heavy, massive stone that's 200 kgs and you just leave it there for 100 years and rain and stuff happens all around it and there's mud, the stone is going to slowly just sink into the ground. Would that be right? Exactly, exactly. And like the one in Clonfad was half submerged as well, the big 190 kilo one. That was half submerged. We had to get uh, big fucking crowbars and iron bars out and, and wedge okay. that thing out with the ground. Because like you said, I mean, the one that went up in Clonfad, said the man, the man who lifted it, Paddy Langan, that was 150 years ago. And like that story was written in 1937. So like, you go back 150 okay. years from 1937, that stone had been sitting there ever since. So it was almost gone. The ground had almost reclaimed it, you know. But uh, yeah, that happens a good bit. And here's another question. Is So just for my listeners, when we had the penal laws in Ireland, which meant you practicing as a Catholic was really a difficult thing to do, and they had priest hunters. That's right. Like they used to send people over from England to hunt down priests and kill them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people had to practice Catholicism secretly and had to go to school secretly in, in hedge schools. Exactly. But with Catholicism, some people had to go off somewhere secret into the countryside and the priest would have mass on what was known as a mass rock. So it's this giant rock that looked like a rock, but really it was an altar. Have yes. any mass rocks also been lifting stones or is there a correlation between those two things? <laughs> the flag of dinner I was talking about, that was also used as a mass rock. That was a mass rock too. Honest to Christ. Yeah, it, the story behind that thing is incredible. But yeah, I said back under penal law in the 16th and 17th centuries, this was used as an altar stone for the so priests. So its purpose changed. It's purpose. It went from this stone. is something to celebrate to now all of a sudden you can't practice your religion anymore. So this isn't a lifting stone. Now it's something you have mass on. Exactly. So it went, wow. it went from being like a, a pagan cursing stone to being an altar stone, you know, which is just... An, and then they put the little cross into it, I'm assuming, to cleanse it of the pagan curse. That's probably the fucking reason they done it. So I'd imagine so, because there was, there was just so much superstition around that stuff. So if you put a cross in something that was pagan or in any way associated with the fairies, it kind of cleansed it with the... Christ was seen as more powerful than the fairies. Exactly. I hadn't thought of that. Great fucking point. Now, I'm just some lad in Limerick fucking throwing out ideas there. So, <laughs> oh, it sounds exactly, you know, I mean, it sounds, why else would you fucking do it? You know, so yeah, so it was used as like a, this this pagan stone, then it was used as a Catholic stone, and it was also used as a lifting stone. The men used to pick it up and see could they, you know, who could get it to their knees. And this thing is absolutely monstrous. I mean, I'm talking probably about 220 kilos, you know. 
So whoever wow. picked, picked that thing up was an absolute horse of a man. So I'm assuming too that the people who picked this up, it's not just about strength, it's about your physical size. Exactly. The span of your legs, the span of your, your arms. Just big joints of men. You know, just big joints of men who, who could do that. It was a great show of power and they got massive respect respect for it. But yeah, that, that story that the flag of Dan, um, it's it, it has everything. You know, it has absolutely everything. An interesting thing too that correlates with this, and again, this is just me throwing out ideas, but um, Finn DeWire from the Irish History Podcast who does a huge amount of research on the famine. The potato came into Ireland in sometime around the 1500s, right? When it became our staple food. And before yes. there was a famine, Irish people were known around Europe to be very, very large people. And the reason being, like people's diets in general in the 1500s, 1600s throughout Europe weren't great. Yeah. But the thing is with a potato, a potato is an entire, you've got protein, carbohydrates. You can live on just potatoes and be real healthy. It has everything you need. Excellent. And Irish people were physically large and strong because of our diet of exclusively of potatoes. And it was great until a fucking blight came yeah. and then we were fucked. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder, is there an association there with these tall, strong people with seriously good diets because a potato gives you everything you need? That's actually a really good point. Yeah, and like, yeah, I mean, yeah. No, that makes people sense. people used to eat, I, Finn Dwyer has the exact statistics, but... The labouring people of Ireland in maybe the 1600s might go through a stone of potatoes a day because they'd be eating breakfast, lunch and Fuck. dinner and with buttermilk and just spuds, spuds, spuds. And Imagine how much calories of carbs and fucking energy you're getting from that. Huge. You know? Well, if you're like, if you're a stonemason in the west of Ireland, you're, you're, you need 4,000 calories a day. That's it, because you're just fucking lifting and pulling a dragon all like, day long. Th these are human beings. So if someone isn't getting enough calories, they're not building walls. But imagine if you're, that, you're, 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 you're eating that much, you're lifting that much, and you're a big man anyway. I mean, you're going to be as strong as holy hell, aren't you? Yeah. And that's just what, that's, that's what lads do now on Instagram. They go to the gym and they make sure they get their four or 5,000 calories a day. And then a year later, they're huge. That's it. That's it, you know, but... So it's, it's, it's that, but for very different reasons. Exactly. This was their world. This was, this was their world. This is who they are. And this is what they've done for a living. And that's what I love about these stones. They're all born in the natural landscape and they're born of people's day-to-day -day work, you know? Mm -hmm. That's what they're for. And that's what they're the from. other thing too is, is if you have a, a culture emerging where strength and size becomes a competition, then it must mean yes. there's a lot of strong, large people around. That's just what it tells me. Definitely. Definitely. There had to be. There had to be, you know. But even yeah. like going, going back through the, the Dukas, like they're saying that, like, you know, this, these men were huge men, you know, six foot this and, you know, up to close to seven feet. And they're all savagely strong lads, like, you know. And sure, even mm -hmm. when you go up west, I mean, every time I go anywhere, like I'm only five foot nine. <laughs> I'm like a leprechaun mm -hmm. standing amongst all these big men up there, you know. So, yeah, so um, yeah. But yeah, I think it must be just a genetic thing as well, you know, we're just big. Of course there's that, yeah. You know, big, 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 big people, you know, big, strong, wide shoulders, you know, I mean, you look mm -hmm. at some of the photographs of some of the men I've met, every single one of them is bigger than me, even if they're twice my age, they're fucking massive, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? But yeah, it's just, it's it's great, it's great to be thinking about all this kind of stuff and talking about all this stuff with someone who has a genuine interest in it because I'm in work, I can't talk to anybody about this kind of thing, you know what I mean? I know, it's one of those things where you really want to find someone who's mad interested because people would think you're nuts. Oh, sure, but everyone thinks I'm fucking nuts anyway, I think, you know? <laughs> but I love that in a way yes it is fucking nuts but also it's not it makes all the sense in the whole world like I, I'm well, who I love to have on this podcast 
anyone who is really passionate about something. That's it. And I can tell by this. Do you, I bet you wake up in the morning thinking about stones, do you? I'm sure the wife is fucking driven correct. <laughs> that's what I love when you wake up in the fucking morning and you're thinking about that thing that's what I love you know I think about A either fucking off up the, up the up the west you know leaving the house at four o'clock and buzzing with the excitement for it or I'm up fucking scanning through Dukas until all hours of the night trying to find more stories yeah. you know but what a fucking honour to be doing it I know it gives you meaning it does like I said it, it's, it's you can't fucking wait to find the next one because the buzz you get from finding them is just mm-hmm. incredible you know you're driving off in the car in the morning, the, the sun is rising, you see the mist coming up off the fucking ground, it's like the air is, the, the ground is breathing, and you're going off and the sun is beautiful, you're getting that lovely sunrise, I have some fucking illum pipes on in the car, and I know I'm going to mm-hmm. find one of these fucking stones, and it's almost like a spiritual experience, you know, every time. Here's what I'd love to talk about there, so, because th- this is, like, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer, and y- you know as well, you went to Crawford, so you, you know the crack with art, and... Yes. When people ask me why I'm an artist, right? Like, I I actually don't like the end. Like, I'm writing a book at the moment and it took me two years. Right. The saddest part of that process is going to be when it's published. Yes. When the book gets published, it actually reminds me a bit of death. I understand that 100%. The bit that I like, and, and this is what I'm always trying to explain to people about art as well. When some people say, oh, artificial intelligence is going to replace the artist. It will and it's no. fuck. Because a real artist doesn't give a shit about the end result. It's nice to have it there, but a real artist is like, no, this was about the bit in the middle. Exactly. And it was about the pain of it as well as as the joy. It's all about the middle. And when I finish this book, I'm going to feel real sad when it's over, but I'm going, let's think about the next one now because the fun here is in the middle. That's it. It's the doing. And and it's the conflict of doing. How you describe the stones there, you didn't mention the finding of the stone. You mentioned the sunrise in the morning, the mist. That's all very process-based. Yeah. It's the process that you're chasing, is it? I think you're, yeah. I mean, you're 100%. It's the process. That's where the meaning is. That's where the meaning is. That's where, that's, you know, it's the, it's the, the fun of, of looking up something and finding it, you know, getting it online, see where the graveyard might be, and then the process of going to find it. That's, that's where it is. And like I said, when you find it, it's like, oh, you know, it's found, it's great, but... You know, I kind of missed the, I missed the process and I'm on to the next one. And mm. that's that's what it is, you know. I'm writing a book myself, it, actually, it, and I never thought I'd write one. I'm writing a book on these adventures at the moment. And fair fucking play to you. I, because like, I never, ever thought I'd write. I mean, I always, like, I'm into music and art, and that was always my creative outlet. Because I think mm-hmm. they're more immediate, aren't they? You know, it's, it's a more of an immediate mm-hmm. thing. But, like, I never thought I'd, I'd write a book. But I'm just so oh, fucking passionate about this. I'm chancing me arm. I'm going to give it a go. And um, fucking go for why it. Why not? Fuck it. Why not? Life's for living, isn't it? What's the worst that can happen? Exactly. That's uh, with anything. I go. What's the worst that can happen? Fucking not. And and, exactly. and and the stones too is a beautiful. Like when I when I when, when some people ask me how do you write a book, right? And I always say to people, yeah, I don't. I, the metaphor I use is is it's it's like uh, cl- climbing a mountain. In that, if you're to climb a mountain, you never look at the peak and say. Fuck me, how am I supposed to get up there? How am I supposed mm. to jump that high? Yeah. You go, the peak is up there, and I'm not going to think about the peak today because I understand that to climb this mountain is actually a gradual thing. I have to have a base camp, and then I have to go up to the middle, and it's going to be all about what happens along the way. Exactly. And if you think of writing a book that way, you know the peak is there, but you're not worrying about that. It's gradual process, and the fun is in the middle. Then at the end of it, you go, oh, shit, here's a book. 
Yeah. But if you start thinking about the peak, yeah. it's so terrifying you'll never start. That's what it was for me. That's what it was for me at the you know, before. I was like, I was just terrified of the whole process. How would you sit down and write a fucking book? You know, I was like, how would you do mm-hmm. it? But like, because these stories are just, I mean, they're great stories. They really are, you know. They tell themselves like so you're journaling along the way. It's a journaling. That's what it is. It's, like, it's almost like a diary, like a like a like an adventure story. Going off to all these these and finding the people and writing down their names and the bit of chat we had with them and the way they spoke and their lovely soft accents they had. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a, it's you know, it's almost like a like I said a, a a diary or a journal piece. You know. Can I give you a little a little tip? Can I give you a little Please. tip that will really help your process? Yeah. So when you the key to good writing. Okay, and I mean writing that when the person reads it, they feel something in their heart. Like fucking O'Flaherty, like with that story. One of the keys is when you you first find that stone or when you first meet that old man, there's something happens very immediately in the moment that gives you those emotions. Yes. You need to try and get that on the page as soon as possible. Yes, okay. You don't wait two days later. You don't go two, three days later and try and remember what it was like when you picked up that stone. You try and write it. Don't even fucking write it. You pick out your fucking phone and you record. You get yourself a little half an hour after you've written the stone and you record your emotions in the moment because in the middle of that passion, your unconscious mind will find metaphors and ideas and things that are related to how visceral that emotion is at that time. And if you can capture that in the fucking moment, you have a document of it, it's there. And then you go back and you listen back and then you distill it down. But you don't want to be thinking about the feeling of meeting some owl lad or picking up a stone three weeks later because your brain will get in the way. I love it. I love it. Thanks a million you for get that. get the immediacy in the moment. And if you can fucking capture that, the person reading it feels that through empathy. That's wonderful. And, and O'Flaherty's story is full of O'Flaherty is just a man like, for that, isn't he? He's just incredible. But both of us picked up on uh, that beautiful passage about the, the, the glistening rock and the mica. I mean, it's just, you can see it in your head. I mean, is it sparkling or glistening? It said sparkling. I think it was sparkling in the sunshine. I think he said, yeah, sparkling. Yeah. So like it, that stood out to me too. And O'Flaherty, he was looking at a rock or something when he wrote that. That's what, you know what I mean? There's a reason why his story gets it in the heart, as opposed to maybe reading an academic article about a rock. Exactly. It's just so visceral. And, and the way he described the man bending down to pick up the stone, that's the exact yeah. same way that I set up to pick up a stone, you know? So it's like, I'm like the fucking reader and I'm the story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I felt I was both. I felt I was like in the fucking never ending story, like Bastion Pantasar books. I was like, I'm the fucking story and I'm the person reading the story. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was affecting the story. It was like, it was, it was just an incredible moment, you know, to read it. And that there, that's the participatory nature of art. That's it. Where art, you're not, it's not just, here's a piece of art and there's the, and, and I'm the observer. You become involved in it. You become em- you become you bring yourself invested into, into the narrative. Exactly. You become my favorite bit in that story. Well, the bit that really sticks out to me is at the end when the man dies, yeah. and two flies have a scrap around his mouth, because what that then says to me is he's dead and he did amazing things. Life goes on. The flies yeah. don't give a fuck about you, buddy. They're having a scrap over who gets to eat your tongue, Jeez, who gets yeah. to lay their children in his tongue. Oh, that's pretty fucking gruesome, all right, yeah. It's gruesome, but it's beautiful Isn't as it? well because yeah. that's what life is. Art debt renewal and the maggots are going to fucking eat us. And how do we feel about that? That's it. And like, 
and that's what these stones are in a constant kind of thing of being you know found again they're being rediscovered again so they, they got their own birth debt and renewal you know they were there they died it's, it's, and now they're coming back and it's the same fucking thing you know but also the cunts are immortal and they're immortal that's, yeah. that's what often that I wonder are people attracted to these stones because like you're going to old graveyards it's just, yeah. and the graveyards are forgotten and the bones are gone the bones are mud yeah. and they've but the stones remain they're still there you know and those people are still there those stories are still there the stories are still there through the stones. They've they've gotten the immortality. Ah, man, it's fucking beautiful. And the ball is fucking incredible. It's it really isn't. It's really amazing. You're doing fantastic work. Thank I'm going to so leave much. it at that, right? Because that's an hour and 20 minutes. But thank you so much, man, for giving the time for this chat. And the work you're doing is is fascinating. And I'm de- I definitely, I'd love to chat to you again to, to see how the work is progressing. Oh, I'd love to. I'm absolute honour. And thank you so much for having me on this. I mean, I've just been so excited all week. I've been a fan of you for a long time. So, thank you and so I've much. seen the caliber of people you have on this. So I'm just absolutely blown away, to be honest. But like I said, I think passion kind of shines through and it shows how much you love something that people kind of res- hopefully kind of respect that and kind of latch onto that. So thank you so much again for having me on. Indeed, dog bless. Thank you to David Keown for that wonderful chat. Follow him on Instagram, Indiana Stones. And I'll be back next week. I don't know what I'll be back with, but I will be back. That was a long. That was a, that was a long episode. I usually don't do them that long. But what a, what a wonderful, fascinating person he was, and the conversation needed to be that length because I'm conscious of when I speak to someone who's doing work like that, and when they're the only person doing it, I become aware that this interview becomes a historical document these stones the lifting of these stones might be a couple of thousand years old and whatever shape the world is going to be in in a hundred years I don't know when people then want to find out about a tradition such as stone lifting in a hundred years which which is fucking nothing compared to the amount of time that this tradition could be they might want to find out about the fella called David Keown who was rediscovering this folklore tradition so they might listen to this podcast in a hundred fucking years to get some information from it so that's why I put the interview out at that length alright I'll catch you next week genuflect to a swan get a, a, a worm and take it out of the hot sun and put it somewhere cold do the same for slugs dress up the Richard Harris statue as a hawk to frighten off all the birds from Bedford Row dog bless deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.